At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 365th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners, we want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is, I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. In nature, we don't find closed loop systems. We find circular systems where energy and resources are part of a loop, repeating itself endlessly and sustaining those systems. Growing food should be a circular system too, and aquaponics is a perfect example. Aquaponics uses natural cycles where fish feed plants and plants feed fish. Let us teach you how to start your own fish-powered garden in a few easy steps. Just text GROWFISH to 33444 or visit IWANTTOGROWFISH.COM and you'll receive our free webinar on how to grow your own fish-powered garden. Today on our podcast, we have someone who finds nature's flavors through secret bounties hidden in plain sight. We're talking with Sarah Burr about foraging for fruit. Sarah is a seasoned chef, gardener, forager, and author. She graduated from the Culinary Institute of America and prefers to create recipes that draw on her professional skill set yet are realistic for home cooks. Sarah's writing has been featured in Savour, Edible Ohio Valley, two full-grown people anthologies, as well as on several websites. Her book, The Fruit Forager's Companion, is published through our friends at Chelsea Green Publishing. Welcome to the show today, Sarah. Are you ready to rock the fruit trees? I sure am, Greg. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I can. Are you ready to journey through the labyrinth with me? This is an indirect path. Let's do it. It usually is for us, by the way. (laughs) So I am a physically restless person, and I just do not absorb information very well unless I'm doing something with my hands, unless I'm making something or moving around through space. And that was something I didn't realize about myself. And now that I understand that, it's helped me quite a bit. But back then, I didn't. And it led me to dropping out of university. I just sort of withered up when I was there. A classroom is really not the best place 
place for me to be. So I floundered around living with my parents. I'm over here laughing because my first semester at Arizona State University in 1981 was my last for almost 20 years. I did end up going back. But my first semester in 1981, my grade average was 0.5. That was two Ds and an F. So I understand that completely. Wow. Well, you outdid me, Greg. I think I actually had a slightly higher GPA. And then I just withdrew. I thought, well, why am I even going through this charade? And I spent a lot of time at record stores. <laughs> and then I headed back home to live with my parents who live in Marriott, Ohio. It's in Southeast Ohio, and they still live there. But it's a lovely place. It was not really the best place for a young woman of 20 years old who wanted to be exposed to culture and, and see the world. Also, there weren't a lot of other friends for me to hang out with. I really got into what I would call hobbyist cooking. So I started cultivating a sourdough starter. I was really fascinated with baking bread. I started checking all kinds of cookbooks from the library and reading cooking magazines. Magazines. I decided I'd always wanted to be a writer ever since I was touched a book for the first time. And I thought, well, maybe I should be a food writer. I thought I had actually made it up. I thought that such a thing didn't exist and I made up food writing. Right. Just so you know, I invented food writing. Perfect. We got it here on recording. So I decided to go to cooking school rather than back to university so I could understand and communicate to people cooking from the back end, so to speak. I wanted to be a translator between the chef world and the home cook world. And I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. It was just the exact right place for me at the right time in my life. It was amazing. I still was not particularly interested in plants outside of what could be eaten at that point. I took a little sidebar adventure as a pop music critic. Oh, nice. Freshly graduated from cooking school. I did that for a while. I worked at a chocolate factory. I did some catering. I did all kinds of things. But eventually, I landed in California in the San Francisco Bay Area. And that's a great place to be. Everything grows there. I would just go around on walks and, and notice these ornamental fruit trees in people's yards. And I also used to work at public libraries. And sometimes in the break room at the library, people would bring in a sack of Meyer lemon lemons from their tree. So there'd be these anonymous fruit gifts just sort of happens when you live in a place like that. I like free things. And that's really when things started to click with me and gleaning and foraging. But I didn't really consciously make that connection. I was working as a food writer off and on that whole time. Eventually, we moved to Portland, Oregon. And that's when my walking practice began. I would take our dog out on walks and just go around the neighborhood over and over and over again. I really love going hiking. And I I just didn't have time in my schedule to do that. So my neighborhood walks became these hikes, so to speak. It was just what was accessible to me at the time. So instead of looking at gorgeous mountains, I would just look at the landscaping in people's yards. And once again, I undertook this micro adventure of noticing plants I'd never noticed before. And instead of looking at the big picture, I was looking at the small picture. And it was really quite gratifying. There was a quince tree a couple blocks away from me. And for... I would say about over three or four seasons, I would just every fall become obsessed with this quince tree. And, and initially I would just steal them, I have to be honest. Nobody was harvesting these quinces. I imagine whoever lived in the house didn't even know what they were. And in fact, I eventually worked up the nerve to just knock on their door and ask them if it was okay. That's really what you should do if you're foraging or gleaning for anything. And the woman said, well, yeah, sure. That's what those are, huh? Quinces. <laughs> That's really how it all began. I just started noticing plants more and 
been falling in love, especially with fruit. And I didn't quite understand why. I think it's just because I like fruit. It just became my thing. Nice. In places like California, that just grows in people's yards. And often they, like with the quinces, they don't know what it is. Yes, which is a, well, I don't want to say it's a tragedy because I'd be happy to take the quince and make it into things and give it to people or talk to people about what to do with it. But I'm most drawn to fruits that are hard to love. I mean, a quince is hard to eat. It's a hard fruit. I'm certain most of your listeners know about them. I was going to ask you to share what a quince is, and it's literally hard to eat. Yeah, so it looks like a big knobby pear, and it's a palm. So it kind of looks like an apple cross with a pear, but it's knobbier, and it's a little flocked on the outside. They look a little bizarre. There's also a familiarity to them. They don't look otherworldly. They do look a little askew. They have a wonderful aroma once they're ripe, which depending on where you are, that can be anywhere between September through early November. So they're very aromatic, almost very fragrant floral once you smell them, even once you just pick them but you don't eat them off the tree. They're extremely tannic and their flesh is really, really hard too. So even just sinking your teeth into one, you you don't eat them raw. You have to cook them for them to be palatable. Even just chopping one up is difficult. They're really resilient guys. But once you get into them and I like to poach them, I like wet heat cooking methods for quince, but you can roast them too. Oh, wow. Deborah Madison has a recipe for that, I believe. I don't have any roasted quince recipes in my book, but I do have a poached quince recipe and that's really my default thing. They turn this beautiful rosy hue, which also has something to do with the tan but they're not like that when they're raw. So they go through this transformation of color and of texture and they become just really magical. They tend to hold their shape quite well too. So they're soft and succulent at that point, but they're not mushy. Oh, they're just great. I love poached quince on yogurt. Yeah. Well, and you make quince paste. Yes, I did that Quince one. jelly. It's not my favorite thing. You know what? It's Spanish preparation called membrillo, and it's oftentimes served with manchego. So if you make a batch of it, you have a lifetime supply to serve with manchego cheese. <laughs> right. So let's jump in. We're fast forwarded now, and you have a book. It's called The Fruit Forager's Companion. Tell me about it. This book, it's a how-to with recipes. So it's a foraging guide. And I mean, quince are, I would say they're borderline exotic. I have recipes recipes for other fruits like barberries and prickly pears that are probably a little less familiar to most people. But I also have recipes for applesauce. What's more familiar than an apple? My approach in the book is to think of foraging not as something that happens out in the wild, but in these gray zones where the wilderness meets what is cultivated, where what's settled meets what is unsettled. Because those are the places that most of us inhabit. I spent a lot of time, now that I live back in Southeast Ohio, in the very town I wanted to escape so badly when I was a young person, (laughs) Right? I go out walking every single day. I have a couple different routes I take, but I always kind of shake them up. And I'm always on lookout for new plants. There are trails through the woods that I can just walk to from where I live. But I definitely live in a neighborhood with sidewalks and alleys. And I kind of weave my way through all those just looking for new stuff. I think I started doing it, I don't want to say because I was bored. But once again, it was a little adventure I could go on without undertaking this big thing. You know, it was a low commitment, very accessible way 
play to learn more about the world around me. The way I ended up writing the book was through moving here to Southeast Ohio. I heard about a fruit called the pawpaw, which happens to be the largest fruit that's native to North America. They grow mostly east of the Mississippi, so you wouldn't see them there in Arizona. And they're an understory tree. They grow in deciduous forests. You'll find them as far north as southeastern Canada and as far south as the northern Florida panhandle. But you don't find them in, you know, solid throughout those places. They don't grow at elevation, for instance. So I had heard about these pawpaws actually when I was living in Oregon at the time where they don't grow. That's out of the range. And I thought, well, how did this weird fruit grow in the very place where I grew up? And I never knew about it. That's strange. So once I moved back, I was really curious to find one. And I was hiking on a trail not very far from where my daughter went to daycare. That was my little treat for the day. I'd take her to daycare and I'd go on a short hike. And it was probably late September, and I saw this bright yellow thing just splayed open in the middle of the trail. It just looked like it was incredibly out of place. And I thought, what on earth is this? So I bent down, I picked it up, and it was clearly fruit. And I thought right away, this has to be a pawpaw. So I brought it back with me, and I did a little bit of research and figured it out, and I kept going back. It just blew my mind. It smells extremely tropical. Like I said, the flesh is this bright, gorgeous, like turmeric yellow color oftentimes. Mm -hmm. They're about the size and shape of a mango, but smaller. So a one-pound pawpaw would be quite large for a pawpaw. They, most of them fit the wild ones. Most of them would very easily fit in your palm. They're not huge. And their skin is not a very bright green color. Sometimes it's mottled with brown spots. So on the outside, they're not that noticeable. This one had just happened to fall down and, and squish open. That's why I found the first one. When you eat them, they have this incredible flavor. It just pops. It's like a mango, banana, lemon kind of thing going on. Very, very tropical. Wow. It seems like it's in the wrong place. <laughs> I felt like I found this secret treasure that had been growing where I grew up all along, and I had no idea about it. So I got really jazzed about these, and I wanted to think of ways I could cook them, you know, as a chef. Chefs really love new ingredients. I had to figure out ways to use this, and I found some recipes online. I wasn't that into them. Pawpaws are kind of difficult to use in the kitchen. You can't cut them. Their flesh is very soft. So once you take out the seeds, it has lots of large seeds in it. The flesh is almost like baby food. They're really fun to stand in the woods and eat, but once you get this baby food-like pulp out of them. Uh -huh. You can bake things with it, but it doesn't always do justice to the flavor. And you can cook with it, but there's a back note with pawpaws that's very polarizing to people. It's a little funky. And when you cook them, the, the funk, it's a front note. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of brings it to the forefront of your taste buds. It does. Yeah. Some people enjoy that, but most people don't. And I figure if you're going to do the work of going out and getting these things, you should use them in a manner that is the most flattering to them. Yeah. Well, that would be the reason why we don't find them in grocery stores. It's one reason. And the other is they're extremely delicate. So you might find them in farmer's markets during the season, which is early fall, in places where they grow naturally. But you wouldn't find them trucked across the country. They just don't hold up that long. That's been a big market 
marketing issue for them, actually. The best way to get pawpaw pulp is to have it frozen. So that's the way I preserve my pawpaws is I just freeze the pulp. And I talk about that mm -hmm. in my book. But I kind of had to figure this out all on my own. And I thought there needs to be a resource for this. So it started out as an idea I was going to do a pawpaw book. And I couldn't get any publishers interested in it. So I thought, well, I'll just do one myself just for the hell of it. And my passion for pawpaws is still extremely strong, but my curiosity got wider and I just started looking for all kinds of fruit. And I thought, well, there needs to be a book for how to use weird fruit that you find, forageable fruit, what to do with it, strategies about how to use tons of fruit when it's in season. What do you do when you have six bushels of ripe pears? If you have a tree in your neighborhood, and your neighbor just gives you a bunch of pears. You know, how do you handle that? This is the perfect resource for the overabundance of harvest time. Yes, exactly. I always say that you don't own a fruit tree. The fruit tree owns you. <laughs> oh, how true that is. I've discovered in the past five or so years that this notion of lack, not having enough, only exists in one place, between our ears. When I look at my fruit trees in my yard, I'm staring at one of my apple trees in my backyard right now, and there are so many apples on it. It's just mind-blowing how many apples there are on it. And so this abundance that happens, especially around fruit trees, is just amazing. It's amazing in a number of ways. The yield, number one. But number two, you think about the tree and the way it needs to reproduce. And it's really creating so many opportunities for it to do so, you know. I just love thinking about how plants evolved and the ways we have kind of nudged them to evolve too, to suit our own needs. And it becomes this kind mm -hmm. of symbiotic thing. And that's another thing. There are all those apple trees that have become kind of abandoned and almost lost that people are reconnecting with now from times when we were growing orchards for cider and then people stopped making hard cider because of prohibition and there'd be sort of these like feral trees that people are still kind of looking around for. So I think of it almost like Mustangs or something, you know, every now and then <laughs> I'll be out there and I'll see a crab apple tree in the woods and I'll think, well, was, th was there a house here and the house is gone now? Was this a decorative crab apple tree that sort of the yard got reclaimed by nature? What went on here? You know, there's all these stories with these trees that you find. But with the abundance, like your tree right now, you can see out your window. I'm jealous. <laughs> One of the wonderful things about fruit and abundance is that it creates this community. You know, you need to mobilize your forces because if you're going to tackle this all yourself, that's all you do is just handle fruit. So you can pick bushels and just put them out in the front. I certainly have done that before. I've certainly taken those before, mostly. I'm more of a taker. I feel like it takes two people, it takes takers and givers. Right. But unless it's explicitly said so with the sign, you know, free apples, then I don't just take things. I knock on the doors now, too. And that's another way for me to be part of my community. Nobody's ever said, right. no, you can't have that. And I don't think it's because they feel awkward. <laughs> they don't know how to say no. I think they just appreciate that somebody notices what's going on in their yard in a non-creepy way. It's a great mm -hmm. way to sort of break down these barriers. I think sometimes I feel shy around people. And, and it's one way for me to connect with people. There's some fig trees a couple blocks away for me and I'm still just this lurker <laughs> around the fig trees for a long time. I really love fig trees and I thought, well, who would plant fig trees here? You know, they're not particularly well suited for this zone. I never really got to the bottom of it, but I would just keep tabs on these fig trees for fun. At a party, I met a woman and I figured out from talking to her that those were her trees. And so we had this great conversation about her fig trees and she was happy to be able to talk to them. So I think that's a great community piece. And that's, that's one of the things definitely I'd like to focus on in the book is how this can be something that brings people together. I do a lot of my foraging 
messaging and my little walks, I do those alone. But by those connections, I become less alone. Right. You know, if somebody's got fruit in their yard, it makes a great opening for a conversation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we need more of those now. You know, more conversations between people standing in front of each other. I don't think social media is bad. I don't think our more technologically focused ways of connectivity are bad. But I do think it's important to not get too far away from just the old fashioned way either. Right. So what are the top three things that people would need to know about foraging? Oh, the top three. Number one is to be safe. So you need to think about where this fruit is growing. Are there any pollutants or contaminants nearby? This sounds kind of silly, but who knows? It could be on an old Superfund site. Is it sprayed with Mm -hmm. pesticides? If it's on the side of a highway, do they spray for any insects or herbicides to kill weeds? So those are things you want to think about. What kind of contaminants might be in the area? Is it legal? That's another really important thing to keep in mind. If you are in a national park, or a state park or a national forest, you know, they all have different guidelines for these things. Clearly, there's a difference between a handful of raspberries on a trail that you're just kind of grazing on a little bit and then bringing back buckets of huckleberries. But when in doubt, I think the best thing to do is just make a phone call. Sometimes you can spend a long time on the internet looking for an answer. You look at their website, you look at this, look at that. Just call someone. Usually they'll give you an answer and it takes less time. So just call a person and find out if it's legal or not. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's private property, once again, get the permission of the owner. And then I would say the other thing is you need to make certain it's something that's edible. Oh, yes. Know what you're harvesting. I've been trying to leave my phone behind when I go out. But one of the really helpful things is to take pictures to help you ID things. I know there are foraging apps. A lot of people will put photos up on Instagram or on Facebook and say, hey, what's this? And I think that's great. Those are terrific resources. But I would say be very careful about replies and who you trust and who you don't. Because sometimes people will say, oh, I know what that is. It's blah, blah, blah. And they're not right. So get some trusted resources. I think it's good to cross-reference. I like paper guides for foraging or rather, you know, a book. I don't always take them with me, but I have lots of foraging books at home. Seems like the more people are into foraging, the more literature they amass about it. It's one of those wonderful wormholes you go down into. (laughs) Yeah, right. Exactly. There are lots of ways to get definitive answers for what something is or what it's not. But you want to be certain that it's safe to eat and edible before you take the plunge. Yeah. You know, I notice in your fruits and how to use them, one of the fruits is a loquat. That's kind of a rare and interesting one. Tell us a little bit about loquats. The first time I encountered loquats, I was checking out my friend Adam's new house in Glendale. He lives in Southern California. And there was a tree there and it had these large, glossy, dark green leaves. And the loquats weren't quite ripe. Once they are, I would say they're about two to three inches long. And they're usually a dark yellowish orange color, kind of oblong. I hadn't seen them before. They're more appreciated in Asian and some European countries and Middle Eastern countries. They have a really interesting flavor. They have one to two or three big, large seeds inside. And the flavor is almost like a cherry, but the flesh is a little bit meatier, I would say. Mm -hmm. His loquats weren't ready. And he just said, oh, they're not good anyway. So I don't know if they are good or not, but he was not very interested in the loquats, but I was, and I kept my eyes peeled for them. I ended up 
ordering some actually from someone who grows them. That is a fascinating website. If you just Google order loquats, you will find it. I forget what it's called, but that's an interesting website. And I got my loquats from him. I keep on meaning to time a trip back to visit my friend Adam so the loquats will be ripe. There were also navel orange trees across the street, which were ready when I was there. So I was able to pick some of those. Once again, the neighbor was totally cool with it. And those oranges were just amazing. There are lots of fruits that we see every day at the grocery store. Obviously, loquats are, for most of us, those are not those fruits. But when you pick a fruit that you've eaten your whole life, like a navel orange, and you eat it off the tree, it's just a completely different experience. And even if you only get to experience that one time, it'll change your life a little bit. You really value the fruit differently after that. Yeah, it will definitely change your world. Loquatworld.com. That is the website. And I really can't encapsulate what it is better than just saying if somebody's needing a little entertainment, it is safe for work. You can go there for a while. Words will not do it justice. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you learned from it. For a long time, I would say this was about 15 years ago, I was dead set on writing a global cultural history of hot dogs, a travel log, if you will. Really? And I wanted to call it the great big book of hot dogs. I imagined this gorgeous full color coffee table book. And I was going to go all over and just talk about regional variations of hot dogs and how they connect with all these different cultures. I had a proposal for it and everything. And I was talking to agents and different people, publishers, and just nobody was interested in this book. I realized that, you know, people either get hot dogs or they don't. I mean, that's probably the only way hot dogs are like quince or loquats, right? Like you either are talking to a person who loves hot dogs or they just are like, why would you write a book about hot dogs? <laughs> right. I was so excited about writing this book and I was a lot earlier in my career too. And I just gave up, you know, I thought, forget it. I just kind of lost interest and lost momentum in it. I still think it's a great idea. It'd be hard to make money as a publisher. That's probably why they were not receptive to the idea. I know there are similar hot dog books, but nothing the way I'd imagined it. So it sounds kind of silly to judge the validity of your career based on if you're able to get anyone to pick up your great big book of hot dogs idea. <laughs> right? I really floundered around for a long time as a food writer. I tried so hard. I was always looking for jobs and sending out resumes. I was freelancing that whole time and doing a lot of writing and a lot of cooking, but things just never came together for me the way I wanted them to. And it was like the hot dog book and its lack of reception from anybody is a great idea, as the brilliant idea it was. It was like the cherry on top of my floundering career. I let it get to me too much, but it got to the point where once we moved here, I realized that I could make more money as a freelancer than I could with the jobs that are available in my area that I was qualified for. And I had to make it work. So I did. And that's when I did my little Papa recipe zine, the Pocket Papa cookbook. Once again, I tried to get people interested in a Papa cookbook idea. And everybody said there's not enough appeal. You know, you can't even get them at stores. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll write my own book. And I did it my way. And I just did it for the hell of it. And it was almost like this redemption for myself that I, I proved to myself that I could do this thing. And the stakes were so low. So that's kind of how I turned it around. I just did something my way. And there was no one to let down but me. And yeah, that's how I overcame it. And you sound happy with it. I have done zero promotion for this book. <laughs> it's a pawpaw recipe zine. My wonderful friend Bobby Rosenstock 
did letterpress covers for it. My designer friend, Nikki Butler, did the layout. My illustrator friend, Lee Cox, did the illustrations. It was just a way to do something fun with talented people I know. And I think if you Google Pop-Pop Cookbook, it probably comes up first in the results. So that's how people buy it. They just order it through my website. Every September, there'll be articles about Pop-Posit because that's when they're in season. So there'll be Pop-Pop articles and this or that online and just randomly get these orders from my Pop-Pop recipe zine. I wanted to see what would happen if you made a small cookbook and did nothing to promote it. And apparently, if it's a niche enough thing, you did, you, you succeed. I cleared my costs and more and I met cool people. Nice. Well, and, you know, Papa is really a thing these days. Yes, which I'm so happy to see because I think it shows, number one, people are so curious about food ways that we've been disconnected from. There are so many people in this area who grew up playing in the woods on their mama or papa's farm and they'll come to me and usually they're in their 60s or older and they'll say, oh my gosh, I remember eating papa's out on the farm or out in the woods and it was like a kid thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And then there are younger people who see it as a really fun, trendy ingredient. And I love that it's both of those things, right? It's like food doesn't really belong to anyone. It's just the people who care about it. I think it's important to respect what things mean to a culture. But I think it's also important to realize that we live in a dynamic society. So papas mean a lot, for instance, in Appalachian culture, but not to everyone. <laughs> Once again, they're quite polarizing, but they're so interesting. And it's a way for people to learn a little bit more about Appalachian foodways. So if pawpaws are the gateway, that's awesome. And the wonderful thing is, too, that you can't really overforage for them. Pawpaws have other ways of reproducing besides the fruit, and oftentimes they can be quite prodigious. So it's not one of those trees that you're kind of a butthole if you go out and you, you know, clear out a whole grove. It's not going to decimate anything. That's kind of a warm, cozy thought. Perfect. And so where do we find your cookbook at? You can go to my website is sausagetarian.com. Perfect. And you were right. I typed in Papa Cookbook, and that was the first one that came up. I wanted to make sure it was yours. <laughs> so what do you consider your biggest success? I think my biggest success was when I got to the point where I, I asked myself, Sarah, if you never write a cookbook in your whole life, how is that going to change things? If you do write a cookbook, what's going to change in your career and in your life? Is it going to be that big of a deal? And I realized the answer was probably not. So I kind of got over it, this thing of me not having written a book. I don't know why I was so hung up on it, but that was my biggest success. Once I was able to let go of that, then things just seemed to come to me more naturally. I don't know if it was a matter of timing uh-huh. or my own spirits lifted or whatever, or just keeping at it, right? But I do think my attitude toward my career changed. Professionalism is very important to me, but I don't think everyone who is a wonderful, good, professional, fine example of what they do, it doesn't always come across on a surface level, which unfortunately, you know, surface levels are really important in a career context. So once I got over that hurdle, I think my confidence increased and it just projected better. I was more hireable because of that, but and happier too, which is, you know, important as well. There you go. What drives you? There's no way for me to not be driven. I intellectually and physically restless constantly, you know, that like restless leg syndrome thing people talk about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's just sort of like me all the time, but I learned how to work it to my advantage. If I don't have something to think about, I actually get really glum. That's almost like what it was like back when I was going to college. I had all these things I was supposed to think about, but none of them were engaging me and I just sort of collapsed into myself. So if I don't have a problem to solve, I'm just lost at sea. 
I would just say curiosity is what drives me. I don't like not knowing the answers to things. And the answers are always changing too, which is great. You can live your whole life and constantly be encountering and uncovering new answers to the same questions. Isn't that great? It is. It absolutely is amazing and fun. And that's the adventure in life that I love. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? I would recommend the book Heavy Words Lightly Thrown. It's by Chris Roberts. And it came out a number of years ago. It's a nonfiction book that looks into the origins of different nursery rhymes. And I'm recommending this book because yesterday I got into a conversation with my daughter's music class teacher about why they removed some of the songs from the curriculum because the content was thought to be kind of too heavy for young kids. The song was Pick a Bale of Cotton, which, you know, is about slave labor in our country. Right. I think it's actually really important for kids to know those things. It's a good window to have a conversation about something like that. And maybe in the context of the music class, they just didn't have time to go into that. So they took out the song. But I was thinking about the songs that they do learn and sing. And so many of them are folk songs and nursery rhymes. And if you look into the origins of those, oftentimes something unsavory and very adult about them. And I know that from having read this book, Heavy Words Lightly Thrown. And I used it when I was researching the fruit book. In fact, there's lots of fruit in nursery rhymes. Oh, yes. One example is, here we go around the mulberry bush. And I'm paraphrasing here, so don't take this as the last word. Read the book. But mulberry bushes sometimes would grow in prison yards like way, way, way back in the day in England. And it was about the time when they let the prisoners out for their, you know, exercise out in the yard. And there's nothing to do except walk around in circles. So that was going around the mulberry bush. Oh, wow. And it sounds so innocent. You know, I think sometimes things are just about what they are. It's just the surface thing. But my entire book, in fact, it's about the symbolism of fruit and what it really means to us, not just on the level of eating, but on a cultural, visual, all these other levels. What are those stories beneath the fruits? And in some of those, I found some answers to in the this particular book. Beautiful. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? If you're not screwing up sometimes, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> of course. <laughs> One thing I do, I'm on the local roller derby team and I'm getting better. I've been skating for three years now on the team, but I'm still not awesome. But what I have noticed is that the people who are really good at practice, they always fall down. Not all the time, but there's not a practice that goes by that they don't fall. And it's because they're pushing themselves hard to try something new and to be better. And you can't do that without falling down sometimes. So whether you're in the kitchen and something ends up not tasting very good, or you cook it too long, or you didn't cook it long enough, you make a batch of jam that didn't set... You bring home some apples and you don't store them the right way and they get all mushy and you have to throw them out. You know, all those things. Those are just opportunities to learn. And if you're not trying new things, then you're not making mistakes and you're not learning how to recover from them. And that's really where you gain the most information and the most personal growth. So you, you got to go out of practice and skate and fall down. <laughs> and honestly, the most fun. Yes. Oh, my gosh. You know, when you start enjoying yourself, also, you don't fall as hard. You learn how to take a fall better. Right. You learn how to take a hit. Exactly. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Sarah. Greg, this has been absolutely delightful. You are welcome. And thank you for giving me this opportunity. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. I love hearing stories. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? They can visit my website, Sausagetarian.com. And on Instagram and Facebook, I am at Sausagetarian. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash foraging fruit. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. We want to know what you think about our podcast. You've been listening to me for almost three years now, and I want to hear from you. I have some very specific questions, including what you like about our podcast and where we should be going next. The important part is I really want your opinion. I'm looking to connect with 50 listeners from no more than 10 minutes who are willing to share your thoughts. It's simple to sign up. Go to urbanfarm.org and look at the top menu. Sign up there. I look forward to chatting. Do you want to save money at the grocery store, eat more organic whole foods, cultivate food security, and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food. They think they don't have enough space, that they're too busy, or that they simply don't have what it takes. Perhaps you've fallen for one of these gardening myths. If you think you can't grow food, or if you think the only food you have access to is what you buy at the grocery store, I have a life-changing webinar that you need to see. It's free and will help you unearth your inner gardener. I've helped thousands of people just like you learn to grow their own food. And I'm speaking from my own experience when I say that with the right knowledge in place, there is no such thing as a brown thumb. With this free webinar, you can begin making your garden dreams come true and start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTTOGARDEN.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTTOGARDEN.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.